welcome to Movie Go Round, a film discussion podcast that rotates between different themes every week on a five-week schedule. This week's theme is Netflix Roulette. Hello, everybody. My name is Brett Stewart. Joining me, as always, on this wonderful evening of Movie Go Round are my two wonderful co-hosts. David Luzader, you're a little sick, but you didn't even tell us we wouldn't have had this recording. Well, you know, a little inside baseball for people. We couldn't record last week because I was moving, and I felt bad about that. And I, while I've had the sickness, you know, I've done other podcasts. I've mostly been okay. Today just hit me like a truck, but I'm going to power through. I'm going to be fine. Oh, man. Well, we're going to keep it short and sweet enough for you to get back to bed, but long enough for everyone to get a good episode in their podcast feed. Joining us as well, Nicole Davis, how are you? I'm doing I'm doing all right. It's been a, a stressful day here, but, you know, I'm I'm totally cool with with David being here and powering through because, you know what? I am down with the sickness. Yeah, so, down, uh, I'm down with this. This movie is like anxiety inducing stress inducing madness for two hours in a way um, uh, it was for me <laughs> um did you see mother i thought you saw mother oh i saw mother and that like that <laughs> was an anxiety, anxiety bomb <laughs> <laughs> this was like little anxiety knife jabs throughout where they're just shamalining okay, you over yes. and over um but let's talk about Memoir of a Murderer. But before we do that, I do want to mention a couple things. First of all, if you're not familiar with the program, Netflix Roulette is where we all spun a wheel last week. And we had three different films pop up randomly on Netflix. And we're able to pick between those three. That gives us a little bit of an option to get rid of documentaries or really short films or four-hour films. And pick something that's hopefully not really atrocious. And we ended up with this uh, Korean thriller uh memoir of a murderer almost forgot the name there memoir of a murderer and next week our theme is going to be future classics that is where one of the hosts and this rotates as well has the opportunity to bring a film that has come out in the last 10 years that means 2008 and onward and they present it to the panel and we decide will this be in some capacity a future classic as we look back on the echelon of film nicole your pick is next week for future classic it is and what are and we watching? I'm excited. We don't know yet. We've now had two movies in a row featuring mental illness and its ramifications. And, and this week's was particularly, you know, bloody and violent and horrible. So as sort of an antidote, um, I decided that we should do something a little more, a little more feel good. Uh, so I have decided to go with Pixar's Wall-E. Oh, oh, my God. Yes. I came very close to picking this myself for Future Classics last time. Very close. So that that, that gives away where I land on this. I'm excited. <laughs> I love Wall-E. Okay. So, that is going to be Pretty just... sure it's 2008 because it's in purple on my list. And that's what I did with the... Oh, my gosh. That's going to be absolutely delightful. Well, everybody, it is 2008. Everybody watch okay. Wall-E for next week. The cute little robot guy. Well, let's talk about Memoir of a Murderer. This came out last year. I believe this is uh-huh. arguably the most recent film we've done. Uh, and it is a Korean thriller, as I mentioned. Uh, aging serial killer. Oh, boy, Nicole, you're going to have to help me here. Byung-soo. Byung-soo. That's going to be a lot of that this episode. 
contemplates coming out of quote-unquote retirement when his daughter crosses path with the new murderer in town. But with Alzheimer's setting in, Byung-soo begins to wonder if he's, if he's on the right track or if his brain is playing tricks on him. This is a dark movie. <laughs> it's basically... This movie is basically a season of Dexter in two hours in Korean. That's exactly what Claire said, and I have never seen Dexter, but that's the exact same thing she told me watching this movie. I mean, it's he's a serial killer who every season runs into another serial killer. So, so is part of the Dexter parallel that Dexter essentially purges which is used in this movie the word yeah. purge no, he, people he, he believes he, are bad he has a code he has a code he has to make sure that they have committed crimes and he oh, is uh, yeah you know it, it it's it kind of goes longer than it can sustain itself but oh, what are you gonna do a lot of shows do but uh yeah essentially for those who don't watch the films uh and you really should with this one because it's on netflix it's very easy to end it's free if you have netflix uh essentially this guy leads us through his life and his memoirs in a sense and he's killed a lot of people but he stopped doing that approximately 17 years before the beginning of this movie uh and this all comes crumbling down when another man enters his life that begins dating his young daughter who is also a serial killer but what's really interesting about this the, movie, no, 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 the, the man is a serial killer the daughter is not a serial killer <laughs> I should also, yeah, sorry about that. Uh, Unclear antecedent, Brett. You need That to- <laughs> would be really fantastic, though, wouldn't it? If they're all three of them were varying degrees of serial killer. Uh, <laughs> but one thing I think this film does really brilliantly, and I mentioned this very briefly in our intro, is it Shyamalan's you left and right. That's how I felt. I'm like, is he a killer? Is he an old man with Alzheimer's? Is he a killer? And it goes back and forth like that, because there are several times where I'm thinking to myself, maybe this younger man that's dating the daughter is not a killer. And then there's times where he is most certainly a killer. And then there's times where something's happening and you're not sure if Gong Su is imagining it or dreaming it. And it creates this really like heavy level of unease throughout the entire movie for me, because you're not really sure what's reality. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think, I mean, I, I enjoyed this. I would say I want to say I enjoyed this movie quite a bit, um, but I think a, a word that's going to come up a lot in this discussion is tropes. Uh, mm-hmm. I think where this movie shines is the acting and uh, and parts of the story are very strong, but it also relies very heavily on tropes. And I, you know, I couldn't suspend disbelief enough for me to ever think that the young man was not a serial killer. I'm like, he's going to be a serial killer. Like that's, that's just going to happen. For me, there were a couple times where I, I believed enough that he, that he might not be. Um, And there are a couple moments in this movie that subvert those tropes though, that I did really love. I mean, my favorite was, him giving evidence because Byung Su is friends with like the police chief essentially. Um, and we should also mention this younger man dating his daughter is a cop. So the serial killer works for the police chief and he gives him evidence and the, the police chief says, well, he's a cop and Byung Su gives him this really deadpan look. And he says like, 
that doesn't acquit him of anything. What's the point? And I like clapped at my TV. I was so happy because that's such a trope of like, he's a police officer. He couldn't possibly be bad. But that still kind of happens at, at certain points, like when he calls in the number. With other people, but with our with our protagonist, and I struggle to call him a protagonist because he's a brutal murderer. Um, this movie also makes you like sympathize with a serial killer. I have conflicted feelings. Um, <laughs> he is he is you in the movie in the sense that like he's the one saying being a cop doesn't mean anything you can still be a serial killer and that's kind of what i like about his character yeah yeah i mean it's he's um he's a sociopath uh most definitely you know he's the and i'm talking about byung su the older man um he is, gosh, where did I put it? <laughs> oh, he claims that he doesn't feel any emotions, and that's why he doesn't show any. And uh, he appreciates humor, but it a lot of times doesn't strike him until after the fact. So he laughs at really odd times. Um, Which I like that little character quirk. I don't know. Yeah. I feel like after a certain point, it stopped coming up, but it was interesting. I liked it. Well, yeah, I mean, there's one scene where he goes into a movie theater and he has one of these, he has these these vascular sort of uh, like mini seizures. And when he has one, he suddenly forgets why he is where he is mm-hmm. and he becomes disoriented for a while. And this happens to him in a movie theater. And so he starts watching the movie and just like sits down next to random people and eats their popcorn and he laughs and cries in all the wrong places. So there's people giving him dirty looks throughout the film. <laughs> um, but uh, that's beside the point. My point is that he's a sociopath. So he examines things very dispassionately. And he's like, yeah, he's a cop. So what? You know, and he's saying when he when he looks back on his own history of killing people, he says, you know, Looking back, there are because he killed bad people, he killed like people who beat their families and loan sharks and, you know, people who impacted other people's lives negatively. He says, you know, looking back, there are more lives that I saved than took away men, animals. What's the difference? And, so and then he, he kills a cat. Yeah, well, that's the why the saddest he moments in this movie is the, is the cat death, right? I missed all the human death. The accidental cat death. Yeah, that's that's what gets him to start using his recorder is when he really, you know, he's a veterinarian and he accidentally ODs a cat on anti-cancer drugs (laughs) (laughs) and kills it. And it's super sad. He doesn't feel sad about it, though. I think he, he starts using the recorder because he realizes that he has he's slipped up in his job and he needs to keep. Mm-hmm. going at that so he uses it out of pure necessity because he looks at things very analytically mm-hmm. so that's that's it doesn't matter to him what people's jobs are he he knows what people can do no matter what their job might be the woman uh young young the woman's like obsessed with him the cougar, yeah, the cougar yes. from his poetry class. <laughs> Why is she so obsessed with him? I guess she's, that poem. He's mysterious. Yeah. He's artsy. He's brooding. He's the only man in the class other than the instructor. <laughs> I just, I, you know, I, I, before the murder, 
I felt bad for her because it's like, come on, this guy very obviously <laughs> wants nothing to do with you. Yeah, it, she, I, it was. Yeah, it was sad. She's throwing herself at him in what is physically and shameless for any culture, but particularly shameless for an East Asian culture. She's hurling herself at him, and he's just completely missing it. She's just irritating to him. Yeah. And then he leaves her on the side of the road. She's like, oh, was I desperate? Well, yes, first of all. <laughs> yes, yes. But also realize something's wrong with him and not yeah. he abandoned you on the side of the road. That Yeah, that's not normal. <laughs> now, I have a question for you both. Nicole, you mentioned these ticks that he has that are essentially like mini seizures of some sort that cause him to forget whatever's going on. And my question for you is, are there times in this movie where you can't tell whether or not he might be having one of those because one of the most interesting scenes to me in this movie is when this young man and what is his name uh the young serial Teju. killer Teju Min Teju yeah, Min Yeah okay well he comes over for dinner lunch tea crumpets whatever it is they're having i don't know and they're sitting together and he has announced that he's going to marry um Byung-soo's daughter and uh Byung-soo ha- has had several revelations prior to this that this man is a serial killer. He needs to get his daughter away from this man. And the time they saw each other prior, he tells this man, I know you're a serial killer. Stay away from my daughter. And uh, when they have this meeting, which is supposedly brought on by Byung-Soo, Byung-Soo acts like he doesn't remember. He says, you know, what was the last thing I, I talked to you about? And and the young man says, oh, you gave me the blessing to marry your daughter. And there is a genuine moment in that scene where you're thinking, oh, boy, are they really sitting down and they're getting married? And he doesn't remember this man's a serial killer, but he remembers. And that's the cool part of the scene. He's playing them like that's fun. I like that. Well, I was kind of glad that that turn came about because it, I didn't up until that point, I hadn't realized that he could fake it. I mean, I should have because he's he's a sociopath and he knows how to like <laughs> fake regular behavior. Um, but he, a lot of times he just doesn't bother. But uh, in this case, he does. But before when I thought it, that maybe he had genuinely forgot and genuinely didn't remember saying those things to, to Teju to stay away from his daughter, that. I thought that maybe his daughter had taken advantage of him losing his memory to start bringing her boyfriend around again. And I really disliked her in that moment. <laughs> no, that, that seems like something she wouldn't do. She's very devoted, very. She's a dutiful very, daughter. Yeah. It just, I never got the sense that she would ever take advantage of, his memory loss in that way um yeah that was like that was a moment where i you know i think it was a mixture of him pretending to forget and a mixture of him also forgetting because you know bear in mind he has an episode in the middle of this scene you know he believes he has this like vision of him attempting to kill the guy but he didn't do it you know it cuts back to reality and he's standing there with the weapon behind his back and he never actually jumps on him well, he's rehearsing in his mind what he would need to do before yeah, he actually right. does it. And then he also, has the opportunity. 
Chekhov's needle that never pays off. I mean, I know <laughs> <laughs> it goes into several necks and limbs, but never nobody ever pushes that plunger. Yeah, that's yeah, that's true. true. That's gonna not be very comfortable, right? When you put the needle in, but you're not pressing the plunger. That made me very uncomfortable no, several times. No, sure isn't. Not Having yet. had a very long IV in from time to time, it is uh, it's not comfortable. Yeah, that's no bueno. That's no bueno. So <laughs> uh, something else that might be no bueno in this movie, though, is the portrayal of women in the movie, or perhaps at least the portrayal of women through the eyes of our antagonist, um, which borders into aggressively tropey. Um, my mom beat me, so I hate all women. <sighs> Yeah, that's the the, <laughs> the younger killer's primary mm. motive right. that we find out near the end is that you know his his dad used to beat his family too, and the one night that he stood up to his dad, his mother stopped him from stabbing his father, and she whacked him in the side of the head with an iron and caved in his skull on that yeah, side. That was disgusting. Okay, and that's Ugh. not that's what the, I put this in our docket. That's not how heads work. Whatever he's doing. <laughs> This isn't uh, how it, heads work. Can we describe like what's going on here? Because this is like how this is like us watching Skyfall in weeks prior, <laughs> and that's not how jaws work. Okay, this is not how heads work. You don't just have like a piece, a, a Lego piece of your head that you can take on and off. Like, how is it even attaching? How oh is no, it that's staying? that's definitely not how prosthetics for your head would work. No, it's like it's it's almost like it's. Uh, like a magnetic thing that he can just like stick on and, and it's magically. <laughs> yeah. Oh no. For context, for context for, for the listeners, he walks in front of a mirror while he's giving his angsty speech about his mother and why he hates women and then takes off, like take your head, split it in four. And he basically takes off the top, right? Like he essentially just whips this like giant part of his head off, um, you know, polishes his little bowl cut and then puts it back on. And, I'm very distraught by this scene. I can't get over it. It really is going <laughs> to well, stick with I mean, me. It sucks for him. He can only have one hairstyle his entire life. And he had to uh, go with the bowl cut, though. Yeah, it's not. It's not a great look. Uh, oh. You got limited it, options when your hair is not doing him any favors. Yeah, but the the women in this movie just are kind of all in service to the men. Yeah, in some way. Yeah, I just I realized that after like a little while, I'm like, oh, that's uh, not great. Yeah, I'm I am not going to claim that that Western movies are like, no, no, yet the pinnacle of uh, (laughs) gender parity in terms of, you know, taking control of movie and having a a full (laughs) breadth of characters and what and abilities and what they can do and what's expected of them and you know but there's i in my experience of the east asian films i have seen it feels like they're still a couple decades back and they're catching up and they're exceptions right yeah i i yeah i would, but it's much say. more it tends to be much more tropey when it comes to sexist uh stereotypes yeah from what i I mean from what i've seen it's kind of par for the course but it's like the daughter is just there to take care of him or to be married off to 
to Teju. Right. Uh, I mean, that's also a cultural thing is your children are supposed to be very devoted to you, particularly the eldest daughter is supposed to be. Right. But, you know, we see her with friends once. We don't know what any of her interests are. Right. That's true. Person outside of taking care of her father. She likes uh, kittens. She, yeah, it's true. Uh, <laughs> you know, she does seemingly nothing with her boyfriend besides walk around and get coffee. They had, they had ice cream one time. Okay. There was like there were tickets to something at one point. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, who knows? We never get we never get to see them alone except in that one instance where they're in the movie theater and the dad is on his way there because he's realized that his daughter's with a serial killer and she's in danger. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, Isn't it a great scene though when he finally confronts this this uh Teju, is that his name? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, when he when when Byung-su finally confronts Teju and he says, you know, stay away from my daughter and just dead-faced he says, but we're in love or like we love each other or something like that. Right. And uh it's so deeply yeah. disturbing. These actors are fantastic at portraying well, really sociopathic people. What, yeah. what I- what I really like about that scene as well is because this is, you know, up up to this point, it, they do kind of play a little bit with like, is Teju a murderer? Uh, and when when Byung Su is like telling him, you know, I know what you are, stay away from my daughter, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Teju, just with that same kind of expression, is just like, is that a confession? And, you know, then he plays the whole like, oh, I'm a senile old man. What are you talking about? Ha, ha, ha. Right. But I just, yeah, I like the, I, the 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 actor um, Kim Nam Gil who plays Teju just does that deadpan sociopathic look really well. Oh, it's super creepy. Do. And and the actor that plays Young Su is I thought I thought he was phenomenal the entire movie. I thought his performance was really remarkable. Yeah, that's uh, Sol Kyung Kyung is plays Byung Su. And he's yeah, fantastic. he's he's amazing, and I I believe he's a bit younger than he's, he's fifty years old. Shown, yeah, than he's shown to be. I think he's made up to look older for most of the movie, except and for I'm the glad flashback. You brought that up because in the flashbacks they did a rather good job of making him look younger, and they really did age him really appropriately throughout the film. They did a great job. Yeah, with I that. think he's closer to the age that he is in the flashback to you know right. the, the time of the accident. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So let's talk about the accident a little bit. Uh, so it's alluded throughout the whole movie that he sustained a head injury uh, in a bad car accident where he flipped a car and flew off the road. And this somehow spurred this early onset potentially of Alzheimer's in his life and all the head problems he's had. Um, and I want to talk less about the accident and more about what causes it because we finally learn toward the end of the movie what caused the accident and the final kill, which was about 17 years ago uh, from the point of the, you know, the majority of the movie takes place within uh, he kills his wife because his wife is cheating on him. And we find out his daughter is not really his daughter. It's the daughter of the man uh, whom his wife is cheating on him with. And it's the daughter of someone. We don't know how it's a daughter of maybe the, dead dude in the leopard print pants or yeah, something probably, yeah. yeah it's probably the the mother's boyfriend who's right in yeah, any case she's unfaithful he kills them both print underwear anyway leopard yeah. print <laughs> underwear yes uh, in the snow um he kills them both and 
threatens to kill the daughter as well um, because it's not his, it's not his daughter. It's obviously a, a emotional extension of the betrayal of his wife, and he goes home with the intention of doing so. And that's when he flips the car, and did he gets guys, home. Sorry, go ahead. Did you guys buy that that he would punish the daughter like that? Absolutely. He's, yeah, if, he's, if he's a like sociopathic, and it's also and I don't think feels, it's a punishment of the daughter. I think it is an emotional an association extension. with the mother. Yeah, okay. it's an extension right. of the punishment of the wife it's to kill didn't, this little girl. Yeah, I guess it didn't, it didn't feel like part of his mo, but I could I see what you guys are saying. That makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's that as soon as he discovers that she's not his blood, that she's not, he doesn't have an actual connection to her, that she is no longer worthy of any additional regard, and that he can treat her like any other person, and therefore that person is disposable. Hmm. Okay, but yeah. over the course of time, of course, he does grow fond of his daughter, not daughter, and uh, in the very end of the movie, uh, when he is finally going to kill uh, Teju, and Teju has taken his daughter hostage, uh, and this is where it really turns into like a horror slash action movie in the last twenty five minutes. Um, he records himself a message where he says, like, you are a killer, but you're going to go kill a serial killer, and he has your daughter, and you love your daughter, and your daughter is the only reason you're alive, and what you live for. And toward the end of the movie, his daughter listens to this recording, and is obviously very emotional about it, um, because she learns through him that she's not his birth daughter. Uh, my question for you is, and I, I posit this for the entire film, is it does it make you feel weird that this film wants you to sympathize with the killer? <laughs> like you kind of sympathize for him. I'm not going to lie. When his daughter, when it's like, it's like in tears because like, Oh my gosh, my re my fake dad slash real dad is coming to save me because I mean something to him. Like there's some sad stuff going on here. Well, I mean this, this movie is centered around Byung-Soo who is, you know, Byung-Soo was a serial killer for many years, stopped 17 years ago, is now, you know, was diagnosed three months ago with vascular dementia and Alzheimer's. And I guess the vascular dementia was a result of the car accident and why he has these little seizures from time to time. Um, but it's because it's from his point of view. I mean, that's just part of the language of film is that mm -hmm. you start to have at least some, not necessarily empathy, but you, you get that, you get his perspective and you're, you're forced to try to kind of understand where he's coming from a little bit, mm -hmm. just yeah. by virtue of the fact that the story is told from his point of view. And mm -hmm. he does, he's not a hundred percent, evil i don't know i wasn't i was about to say he's not irredeemable but he kind of is irredeemable yeah <laughs> but i mean he he loves his daughter yeah that, there's the devotion to the i think there's a devotion to the daughter which really yeah. plays up our emotions because she's so sweet and innocent and he has right. this really strong connection with her that it's like oh he's not such a terrible guy yeah he can't be all bad there are lots of <laughs> he things works with animals and he loves his daughter you know so he's yeah. he's not a horrible person he just killed uh, we don't know how many people but they were all <laughs> bad people so it's okay 
But, yeah, yeah. but also there's scenes where he's he's writhing in pain because he's um his he's his brain is dying according to him and like I well, I, yeah I mean that's what Alzheimer's does it actually right. oh, oh no of course kills parts of your brain but what I'm saying is like he acknowledges that in the movie that's what I mean um and that's like. Yeah personally to me like one of the scariest things it like that's the worst way to go in my opinion um because you don't know it's happening and um that's really terrifying and the fact that he knows it's happening sporadically throughout the movie and there's a scene where um he is just writhing in pain and like cr- like basically in the fetal position on the ground and his dead sister hologram comes to him. <laughs> we'll talk about that in a in a minute that's probably a natural lead in um and he tells her he's you know, losing his mind and his body's dying and you look back on his life and the reason that uh his aggression and his serial killerness started is he was you know beat as a kid and then his his sister committed suicide and like there's a lot of really sad things going on that even though he's a serial killer i have some empathy for him i feel right, well and there's also that that you know that first kill it's really rough. Like, you know, he's, he's protecting his family. That's how, you know, we're supposed to kind of take it as he's, he's saving his mother and sister. Yeah. His first Uh, kill is his own father. Yeah. Yeah. And just like they, you know, they kind of make sure that, that (laughs) to emphasize that it's like, well, if you're going to root for any serial killer, root for this guy, because he he gets the bad guys. (laughs) But see, that's why I think it's interesting about the way this film is written, because it is written from the perspective of a guy who's not a good guy. And, uh, I still have some empathy for him. He is irredeemable and he is a terrible person, but I have some empathy for the, the human things that happened to him in terms of abuse yeah. and mental they, illness. And it's, it's really, it's they really do a good job. They do a good job of, of humanizing his character where they very easily could not have. I mean, I think they, I think they very purposefully do not humanize Teju. They, they keep him kind of this strange uh, strange robotic man who is very easy to see as the serial killer. Where Byung Su, they they make a very big point of like we're going to make him feel like a human. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And let's talk about one of the ways they do that, which is the sister. Uh, so for for context, for those who don't watch the film, uh, she kills herself. We learn this way later in the movie, long after he's been interacting with her, because he does have these lucid visions of interacting with his sister as uh, a nun in a, in a convent. And he goes as far to give his sister in his mind, his daughter to take care of and be safe when he's really giving her to Teju. Like there are many really horrific elements of the way he portrays or not portrays the way he is imagining his sister, you know, in her death it's really alarming and sad oh yeah but i mean this is this is part of what's really strange about the movie i mean this this movie has it may be the most unreliable narrator i've ever had to to follow in a movie um because he's part partly he loses his memory about some things and partly he hallucinates certain things so he's been like going to see his sister at the convent and talking to her and getting advice and you know when he realizes who uh teju is and he's 
decides that he's got to go kill him, he bundles his daughter into a car and thinks he's putting her in a taxi with his sister and she's resisting it. And he's puts her in the car anyway. And you, he flashes back later with a true memory and he was putting her in Teju's car. And it's, you know, you, you don't find this out until his daughter and he is missing and he says, I, she's with her aunt. And he's like, okay, go, you know, and Teju's in front of the chief of police and a bunch of other witnesses. And says, okay, call her, call your sister, call her aunt. And he looks in his phone and she's not there. And I'm, you know, I'm sitting there at that point. We don't know that his sister is dead. And so I'm sitting there and I'm saying, did, is she really not there? Yeah. Or did Teju get the phone and just erase her number? This was one of the the biggest ways they subverted tropes for me. Like this was, this was the thing that got me. I was like, oh man, I did not see that coming. So what did you think at first? Did you think that the sister was dead or did you think that he, she'd been erased from his phone to make him think that he had misremembered things? I think at that point, like I, I was starting to piece together, like, oh, the sister is in his head. Um, I, yeah, at, at that point, like, I think it was yeah, like clicked for me of like, oh man, she's not real. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm I curious, mean, looking how back- did that happen for you though? Because for me, whenever there's a movie and it's like, look at someone interacting with someone who's not there. Um, there's you when you watch the sixth sense right you can go back having watched the sixth sense and you see him interacting with bruce willis and you notice that like the things around them are not responding the way they should this person is not physically there and i didn't get that vibe with the nun there was no reason for me throughout the movie to believe that his sister was not there well you know he whenever he's with the sister there's no one else there um that's true he he's the only one that ever interacts with her uh, she shows up randomly at his worst moment. Yeah, she's supposed yeah. to live in a convent. So yeah, I guess that's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think there's like there's little stuff here and there that hints. They do a good job of not really hinting at it, but then once you realize it, like it's like oh, okay, that all makes sense. Right. Looking back, I should have had. I knew there. I knew there was something important. The first time he goes to visit her, he brings like this sliced sushi roll with him for uh-huh. lunch and leaves half of it on the bench when he goes to see her. And the the camera lingers for just like half a second. You know, the thing is in in the center of the frame for half a second, and I'm just. Like, okay, I'm supposed to register this for some reason. This is going to be mm-hmm. important later that he left this here. And then for a while, I'm like, oh, well, maybe it wasn't. Maybe that's not important and I can forget about it. And then it circles back when he goes back to the convent to check to to say, yeah, I'll show you, you know, let's go see her and my sister will be there. You know, it, this place is completely abandoned. It's obviously been abandoned for a really long time and his leftover sushi is sitting there on the dirty, filthy, falling apart bench and it's rotting. Um, so, you know, it's proof that there was never anyone there and that she is, in fact, in his head. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's, 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 it's such a good little twist in the movie. It is a really yeah. good little twist. Um, though I, I would say that for 
a sister that is in your head, it's really horrible for your head sister to tell you, oh my gosh, your dementia has answered my prayers. Now you will revert to being 15 years old. It's, um, it's, it's secretly what he wants. You know, he kind of wants to forget. Do you think that's it? Because it happens at the life. end, right? Like at the end of the movie, he is yeah. the 15 year old. Yeah, at the end of the movie, he doesn't recognize and he is his daughter anymore, and he thinks that she's his sister. Mm-hmm. You know, he he's regressed to the point where he doesn't have any newer memories left after when he was a teenager. But I mean, he he's lost all the guilt. He's lost, um, you know, he's he's lost that guilt of killing his father to start with, and he's lost all the ugliness and the killings after that, and he's. You know, that's that's something that he imagined his sister saying is, you know, he's going to go back to this more innocent time where he's not constantly in some way sort of punishing himself for having done that. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's, you know, he envisions the sister as a nun because, you know, he has this. This just like this view of of innocence with her, because that's what he kind of has this desire for. Is it is innocence and like absolutely he does get that at the end when he can't remember his life and, and it's tragic. Then do you think like so we learn that the sister committed suicide? She hung herself or hanged herself. Um, grammatically, that's never made sense to me. I digress. Nicole, you need to explain <laughs> it to me sometime. Um, <laughs> uh, in any case, though, um, we we're not really given necessarily a motive of why she killed herself. Maybe it's the fact that. Her father's dead and the family's in disarray and who knows. Uh, I wish we had a little bit more that to that bone. I wish we had a little more emotional connection as to why she killed herself. But suicide, I think, is like the ultimate loss of innocence in a sense. And I think David's absolutely right that the, that the nun is, is the purest image of which she could pop up, right? Um I suppose. I suppose he would think of that as sort of the the maybe he would think of that as the closest earthly analog to an angel. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one too. Yeah. That's a really good one too, actually. Of innocence and purity. And to to Brad, what you were saying about you know you wish that you knew more of why why she did it. I don't know if Byung Su knew. You know, it yeah. could just be a thing that he's not sure why she did it. And well, that makes I it think even more she knows that her brother murdered her father and her father's like buried out in the yard somewhere, basically. Yeah. And she's having trouble living with that. Either that or, you know, just she's she was abused for years at her father's hands as well. And that might have mm-hmm. been having, you know, lingering psychological effects. So mm-hmm. when we look at parental abuse and unreliable narrators and people buried in the back grove uh this director liked frailty huh like um on the entire movie i'm thinking like this is kind of just international version of frailty um with some more nuances first of all and layers oh is this based on a book Mm mm-hmm Maybe the frailty. A, me. Okay. A murderer's guide to memorization is the name of the book. Fascinating, um, fascinating. But I do see those parallels because in, in you know we have all those things in in frailty, which was I think our first episode of this podcast. Actually, go back and listen to it; it's quite good. Um, and in that movie, we we also talked about the symbolization of where all the bodies are being buried. That happens in this movie too. There's a bamboo grove. He's burying all the bodies out there. That's where his old wife is. That's where 
I believe pretty much everyone he killed was. I don't know if his dad's there. I think his dad is there. No, his dad. No, his dad's somewhere else. No, his dad's somewhere else. Right, because that was like the impromptu, like roll him up in a carpet and dump him in somewhere. Um, But all of his, you know, meditated (laughs) uh, murders are buried in this bamboo grove, and. I mean, Nicole, you put this on a docket. What does it symbolize? Is it tropey? Is it like I bury my problems? <laughs> well, I wanted to ask you. I went and looked it up. <laughs> okay. Because I, I knew it had to be something because bamboo is very important in a lot of Asian cultures and it, it serves a lot of different purposes and it has a lot of different symbolism depending on where you are. Um, and primarily in Korea, uh, it's often seen as a symbol of integrity and consistency because it grows straight and tall and it's green every season. Um, in, you know, like Chinese painting, it represents summer and it's often seen as symbolizing good fortune, drives away evil spirits. But the, the interesting thing that I saw that I kind of latched onto, I, th- I think the integrity is part of it because he sees himself. Byung-soo sees himself as having integrity. You know, like he only kills people who are deserving of it. um, And the world is better off without them. And so, I mean, this is, this is his integrity and, uh, but bamboo is also hollow. It's empty inside. And I think that's part of, his personality you know he is he's a man who's got a this constructed facade and he's got his purpose in life but he doesn't have there there's nothing outside of killing people you know there's and and occasionally parenting on a decent level there's nothing that fulfills him you know, he goes to these poetry classes and he gets nothing out of them. He doesn't seem to, you know, he takes care of animals because he le- doesn't like dealing with people. And it seems like he doesn't have a lot that fills his life. I think, yeah, I think there's a lot there as well. And I think with the uh, with the consistency thing, he talks a lot about muscle memory and what his body remembers how to do even right. though his mind does not, you know, he talks about how he remembers how to murder, even if he can't remember, you know, how many shots he gave the cat. But he remembers uh, how to give a cat a shot. That's true. Right. But no, I think, I think there's a lot there, but just, uh, you said about like that, you know, it's, it's hollow. And he talks about how he is so empty. That's interesting. Right. That's and he often loses memory when he gets to the bamboo grove, you know, he gets there, he lies there. It seems he he appears to get some measure of peace when he lies in the bamboo grove and listens to it for a while. Um, and you know, the, the sound of wind through the bamboo is, is supposed to drive away evil spirits. And I don't know if, if that's what he thinks he's doing when he's there, but it's, you know, while he's there, he often loses his memory and can't find his way back. And so a lot of times when he's on his way back from the Grove, he gets picked up and brought to the police station where he's made friends with, you know, Chief on because probably because he's encountered him so often. I don't know. Or they, they seem to have known each other from a ways back. Yeah. It seems like he's, he's lived in that town 
looks more like a small city, but he's been there for because he asked him, you know, do you remember this girl from 17 years ago? Right. Well, that it is a heartbreaking like thing, right? The the illusion of, oh, the guy, my good friend is and the woman who my good friend has spent 17 years attempting to avenge. I killed her. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a bummer. That, that's a bummer. <laughs> Their friendship would not have lasted if the if the chief had lived. Good um, thing the chief was brutally murdered. <laughs> <laughs> Which, by the way, is like one of the saddest deaths of the movie, I think, is the oh, chief yeah. is oh, yeah. so satisfied with himself, and you know it's coming because everything behind him is dark, and he's lighting his symbolic cigarette, which I thought was a little premature. Yeah, um, oh, definitely premature. <laughs> <laughs> probably should have taken care of the hostage situation first. Um, and let's yeah, I talk mean, about- that's so poetic. You know, Chief on has, has sort of pined for this, this girl who used to sell him cigarettes, and she disappeared 17 years ago, and he- kept the last pack that she sold him and swore that he'd kill that the person who murdered her with his own hands. And when he thinks that that killer is, is close by and that he's going to get to bring him in, he lights that, that last cigarette. And it's by the light of the lighter that you see Teju behind him. Which is a great shot. It's a great shot. And it closes things into a very tidy loop but it's so sad but he shouldn't have gone in there without backup or he should have at least well, he called for backup and yeah. he was waiting in the shed he wasn't trying to go into the house to no, act- he was in the house no i thought he was in the shed no like, he was he, he came in the side door of the house which is why uh, uh, they start running through the house when um the daughter sees teju kill him um mm-hmm. though okay. i do want to note that apparently like personal vengeance is really the most effective way of quitting smoking because what Nicole didn't say was that he, in those 17 years, he did not smoke. He was waiting to smoke for that moment. So never even got to take a puff. Uh, let's talk a little bit about those final scenes, though, because toward the end of this movie, it turns into a really high intensity fight between um, Byung-Soo and Taeju. And it's a it's bloody and it's gory and they're stabbing each other and like, and you really got to give it to Byung-Soo because like he should have died like 15 times in this fight and literally just drags himself on the floor after Taeju to get him. And uh, finally, it does end with him killing Taeju. And uh, I thought actually he would have died too, but he doesn't. And he ends up, uh, it looks like either getting arrested and put in prison and slash or institutionalized. I think it's the latter. What do you guys think? Yeah, I think it's a secure mental hospital. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it seems institutionalized, and he uh, he reverts to this this state of being like fifteen, like we talked about. His daughter comes and visits him. He thinks his daughter is his sister. Um, his sister pampers him like uh, nice. His daughter pampers him like he imagines his sister would by getting him his white uh, sneakers and uh, cutting yeah, his hair. Yeah, white sneakers and cuts his um, hair. And it's really just uh, horrible because. This is like, that's the end of the road at that point, right? He's gone too far. It's only going to get dramatically worse from there, and there's no chance of him remembering anything. And I want to ask everyone about the finale of this movie. It's one of those movies where you see the first screen of the end of the movie at the beginning of the movie, and then you go back to the end of it at the end. And we see him as an old man, a haircut, so post uh Post institutional inst- institutionalization, it's been a long day, guys. Post being institutionalized, and 
he is walking through a train tunnel uh, with a, mm-hmm. with a suitcase, and he looks at a locket that was given to him by his daughter that had her face in it and their address inscribed upon it. So when he got lost, he could get his way home. And instead, Teju's face is there, and he turns around, and there's this vision of Teju, and and he says to the effect of, "He's still out there. I need to get him." And what is everyone's interpretation of this ending? I'm not a hundred percent sure. Old man with dementia. Yeah, I think it's on a hunt that will lead nowhere. But I also think it's a fantasy. I don't think it's him actually out of the hospital. Right. How would he have left the hospital? Yeah. And also, why does it conclude on a train track? I mean, that just, I don't know. My interpretation of this was, uh, it's kind of the ultimate tragedy of dementia and Alzheimer's, which is uh, he's already accomplished what he believes is the most dire thing in his life right now. Save your daughter from the serial killer. He's already done this. The serial killer's dead. His daughter is safe. And at the very end of the movie, we find out that he believes the serial killer is alive and he still needs to get this guy. And that's how he's going to live the rest of his days is believing this man is alive and still a threat to his daughter. And I think that is part of the tragedy of his character a little bit at the end, or at least my interpretation, is that he's never going to realize that he did what he set out to do. Well, I mean, there's, there's two things about that. ending. one, the, the big question in my mind is, I, I don't know how linear uh, the progression of Alzheimer's is. If you, if it's possible to like come back to where you were and then get lost back in the past again, um, because I thought he had already regressed to the point where he didn't remember anything after he was a teenager. So how he, would he remember Teju? That might just be a plot hole. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. But the other thing is this reminds me a lot of Memento oh, okay. where, you know, the, the protagonist keeps losing his memory over and over and over again and has to rely on recordings and things that he's written on his body to remember what he's supposed to be doing and spoilers from Memento, a movie from, you know, like 13 years ago. <laughs> um, yeah. So spoilers from Memento. Uh, he accomplished his goal at least once. The one that mm. he had, you know, originally intended to achieve, but he may have been redirected more than once to after different targets thinking each time that he's killing the man who murdered his wife. So he may have killed multiple people. And each time he thinks he's reached his goal and he's succeeded. And then he forgets that he's succeeded and starts all over again. Yeah, this- And I'm wondering if, you know, that, and that reminded me very much of this movie where he keeps forgetting the progress that he's made in figuring mm-hmm. out that his daughter's in danger from this other serial killer. Exactly. That was kind of my interpretation. Uh, the, this reminded me of a different piece of media as well, uh, which is an episode of BoJack Horseman from the latest <laughs> movie. Uh, there's, an episode, Interesting. there's an episode called Time's Arrow, which takes place entirely in BoJack's mother's head. And at this point in the show, she uh, is very far progressed in Alzheimer's. 
and it is just how she it's all about how she experiences the world and it is so fascinating and heartbreaking it's called time's arrow um it gave me such like an understanding of what it must be like to have that condition and it is it is fascinating yeah Hmm. it's it's an ending that when I was reading a ton of reviews of this movie, a lot of critics felt it left unresolved items to a detrimental degree. Um, I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. I, I think that there is benefit in the fact that you get to interpret whether or not this is a fantasy or whether he somehow got free. Um, but also... Or is he dying and this is his last vision? Right. Is is the tunnel... the Is he going towards the light in the tunnel um, physically? Did I don't know. Did he finally know. succeed? Did he get the, the needle in his neck and, and succeed in killing himself? Yeah. Did the needle finally get used? Like, right. After six or seven times. Um, though I, I will say one part of this scene we haven't talked about, and not to dig too deep into it, is the fact that Teju replaces his daughter in his locket. That was yeah, weird that's man. weird. <laughs> but I mean, because I looked, I looked this up and couldn't find anybody, you know, commentating on their thoughts on this. I, I mean, again, this this is where I think that the the writer and or writers or the director all saw a memento and were like, oh, you know, he uses these Polaroids to remind himself who to go after, and maybe that's why he's replaced. He's put Teju in the locket so he remembers to go kill this guy. Yeah, I think, I think that's it. I think that's entirely right. possible, especially because he has forgotten his daughter at the end, right? So why would she be in the locket if he doesn't know who she is? If the locket, oh, we're going to go really down the rabbit hole here. If the if it's all <laughs> a fantasy and the locket is not physical, it's something he's imagining, then it would make sense that the image in the locket would be replaced by whoever he's fixated on. And not still remain of the person he doesn't remember nor know who she is. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, could be. Could be. Mavis just meowed. She agrees. Hi, Mavis. Don't scratch. Do not scratch our furniture. What are you doing with your life? Get a job. Okay. Um, <laughs> so this was. Would you guys recommend this movie? Uh, this is. This might be the first Netflix roulette that I think I would wholeheartedly recommend personally. Yeah, I think I would. Yeah, I, d- I definitely would. I, I, um, even though, you know, the killer destroys this really nice bottle of cognac. Um, yeah. Somewhere in there. But, you know, hey, the sacrifices have to be made, I suppose, when you're out there murdering people. Um, yeah, I definitely would. I was so, you know, I had written in the Slack that I th- I think you're going to be pleasantly surprised. And I'm like, well, not pleasantly you know it's about a couple of serial killers but i really was quite happy with the movie at the end i'm like this is actually interesting it's involving it's doing something i i haven't seen before at least not quite like this and so it was not lucky them it is substantive in many ways yeah i mean a lot of times our netflix roulette picks have been things that it's work to watch and that you have to, mm-hmm. you kind of have to break it up into multiple sessions because it's like you stop pausing because it's, because oh. it's clown yeah about clown <laughs> Coin. Yeah. oh i forgot it's about like, that one that was right. a dark one where you just 
It's sometimes you just gotta slog through it and make your way to the end. But this one was really involving and interesting, and I enjoyed it. I think if you like crime dramas, this is definitely an excellent choice. So, you know, I if if you like crime dramas and you're okay with reading subtitles or listening to not so great dubbing, then I would absolutely recommend it. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm very excited that after a couple weeks of darker discussions, we are going to be heading toward the light with Wally and Nicole Spick for uh, future classics. And also, I should note, our first animated film. Um, this might even be amongst two or three animated films we've discussed as a whole with this show and Geek Cinema included. I can only think of Heavy Metal. <laughs> that's Maybe animated. Heavy Metal and Akira previously oh, and yeah, Howl's Moving right. Castle. And Owls Moving Castle, that's right. So some animes in there. Um, but I'm really looking forward to this. I'm excited. Wally for next week. But let's go around the table. David, where can people find you when you're not down with a sickness? Uh, uh, you can find me on the Headcat Comics <laughs> podcast and on the Brookbot Mountain podcast and around the internet. And the username Davluz, it's D-A-V-L-U-Z. Google it, you'll find me. I got to give it to you. You are remarkably coherent for someone who has just hit what it seems to be the worst part of their strep, um, like three or four days. So big oh, props man. To you. earlier, I would have been useless. I've recovered quite a bit tonight. Oh, good. Very good. And Nicole, where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me shepherding the moving around Facebook page and that's facebook.com slash moving around podcast. Um, I'm also on Letterboxd under Nicole underscore Davis. And you can find my personal Twitter feed is at your word whiz. That's Y-O-U-R-W-O-R-D-W-H-I-Z. Right on. You can find me at brettdavidstewart.com on Twitter at Rivers Rubin. Again, next week we're going to be watching Wally. And you know what? Shout out here. Last weekend, I was one of the few people that went and saw Christopher Robin opening weekend. And my heart is filled with Disney joy. I'm getting eye rolls right now. It was pure wish fulfillment of my childhood. I it just I heard that that movie was full of poo. So I did not go <laughs> I loved it. I I'm sorry. I've loved it. <laughs> I've been with somebody telling dad jokes all day. I know. Uh, <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, I'm excited to go back down to the Disney rabbit hole next week. That'll do it for myself, David and Nicole. We'll see you with Wally next week. 